Welcome to the Mount Carmel Christian Church Podcast. In our sermon series, Promise, we're looking at the nativity story to see how wrestling with longing can help us eliminate hurry from our lives. Today's speaker is Senior Minister Didi Bacon. And it was wonderful to witness uh, Tava's baptism, her confession of faith, the bringing to life the truth that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus came into the world to love those who were lost, to bring into his family those who were outside. And so I encourage you to pray for David, pray for the family, pray for those who will invest in her, to train her, to help her learn what it means to be Jesus' follower. But this is just exciting. I'm so glad you broke out in praise. I'm so glad because the Bible says that when one lost is found, there is a party in heaven. The angels rejoice. Right? The angels rejoice. I remember that time when my son hit a grand slam in a, in a game, and I was like, yes! Well, it's even bigger than that. It's even bigger than that. It's like, yes, yes, yes. And I think we need to really appreciate that. Well, here we are, the last month of the year. It is December, and it's Christmas season. Doesn't this look pretty? Christmas season. It's also the season of Advent. Those of you that are familiar with church calendars, we know this is a season of Advent. Advent has to do with waiting. It's the focus on the patience involved in waiting for God to fulfill His promise. And so we focus on the Christmas story. We're coming of Jesus. The Son of God came into the world. The story about Mary, a virgin who conceives miraculously. We focus on the story of Christmas because it's an affirmation that God is faithful in fulfilling His promises. And that's what Advent's all about. It's about being rewarded, being blessed for your patience. It's also a reminder for those of us who are Jesus followers now, it's a reminder for us to know that we still live by promise too these days, the promise that one day Jesus is going to return for His second coming. And this second coming is not going to be coming back as a child. No, He's going to be coming back as King and Judge. King to bring His people to Him and as Judge to set everything right once and for all. So it's ironic for me to think about this season of Advent, the season of waiting, the season of patience, the season of trusting God to fulfill His promises. It's ironic that we characterize Christmas many times not with waiting and patience, but with hectic and crazy when we lose our minds with our schedules and our commitments. And being at the end of the year, many of us are working really hard to bring things to a close at work. We're working real hard at making sure we fulfill all family obligations. This is a season of turmoil for many people. Difficulty, struggle, season we lose our brains and get into debt up to above our heads. And it's not characterized as peace in many ways. Season that we're really, really busy. And that contrast really is helpful to bring to light something that I've been become aware of. It's an observation by a man named Dallas Willard, who, in a conversation with another man named John, John Ortberg, said, The enemy of the spiritual life, and I think he was speaking specifically to us Americans, the enemy of the spiritual life of our world today 
is hurry. And in fact, he challenged John. He said, if you want to have some depth to your spiritual life, you need to commit to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. In his book, Soul Keeping, Ortberg makes a distinction between busyness and hurry because I think many times we equate the two together, but really there is a difference. And, and Ortberg kind of details in his book the difference between busyness and hurry because we can be busy, but we don't have to be hurried. And if you look up on, your screen, on the screen right there, we have this, uh, this, this comparison. If, if we're busy, it means we have a full schedule. But if we're hurried, it means that we are preoccupied distracted. If we're busy, we have many activities going on. If we're hurried, it means that we are unable to be fully present. And even though we might be busy and, and have a lot of stuff, we're not fully present in where we need to be. I have a saying that I say to my kids, live where your feet are. Live where your feet are. If we're busy, it's a condition of the outward. Hurried is an inner condition of the soul. Busy means we're dealing with things that are physically demanding. We're, we're tired because we're putting out a lot of energy physically. When we're hurried, we're spiritually drained. It's like the plug's being pulled out from inside of us, and we just have nothing else inside to give. If we're busy and we're open to it, we can be reminded of our need for God, that we are finite, dealing with Limited resources trying to get our way in the world. It can be an opportunity for us to be reminded that I need God. But if we're hurried, the reality is, is that we are unavailable to God. It causes us a sense of separation from God. That we don't really capture the promise of Christmas being Emmanuel. God is near because of our condition of the soul. You know, I'm talking about this and I'm thinking about the difference between busy and hurry. And I'm reminded as an athlete, a former athlete maybe, um, of that condition, that state that you can get into. It's called being in the zone. How many of you are familiar with this being in the zone thing as an athlete? It's like when you're calm on the inside, but you're doing everything you need to do. You're hitting all the shots, the ball that you're, it seems like it's like a watermelon, not like a little, like a golf ball. I mean, everything is clicking. You're moving fast. But inside, you're just calm, cool, and collected, being in the zone. And I think about not being hurried. I'm thinking about that's what it means to be in the zone spiritually. I remember that scene from the movie, the first movie, Karate Kid. Do you remember that scene where Miyagi is sitting at the table and he's trying to catch flies with his chopsticks? Remember that? Well, if you didn't, here it is. Watch this. Try? If wish. 
Miyagi, look. Look. <clears throat> you begin a luck. <laughs> Being in the zone, right? It's an amazing feeling. I'd been there a few times. One time, I had a stick in my hand, and there was this bee buzzing around me. And I just went, and I whacked it right out the air. I'm like, not beginner luck. <laughs> I mean, it was an amazing feeling. Just reacted and just hit it right out the air. Another time, I was... Uh, I had a cricket ball and a cricket bat. I talked about cricket last week. And so I had this ball. And I was standing in a huge field out there. I mean, it was one of these big fields, playing fields. And there was this one kid that was standing way over there. I don't know why he was standing there. He was just standing there. So I'm like, huh, let me see what happens. So I threw in, pow, I hit the ball way up in the air. And I'm watching, I'm watching. I'm like, oh, yeah. It hit him square on the top of the head. <laughs> Bound, pew, bounced off. He went down. I'm like, that was awesome. <laughs> I was in the zone. No, I don't know if I was in the zone at that moment. It was just pretty lucky, but it was awesome. <laughs> you know, uh, the promise of Christmas, the announcement to the angels was this. Glory to God in the highest and what? Peace on earth on whom his favor rests. The announcement of Jesus was this. He will be bringer of peace, prince of peace, right? That's what Isaiah said. The promise of Scripture is that if we in Jesus cast our cares upon God, we will bless with what? A peace that passes understanding. Our hearts and minds will be guarded. That's what Philippians says. Our hearts and minds will be guarded by a peace that goes beyond comprehension. A peace that to me, seems to be the opposite of hurry and the hurriness of our soul. And so our plan through this time of Christmas is to look at the Christmas story and to talk about how God provides the peace that counteracts the hurry of our life, to, to really go opposite the trend of craziness in Christmas and to encourage each of us who are Jesus followers, each of us who have faith in God, who have received this gift to have the peace that we need so that we might be in the zone if you'd like. And we might be able to appreciate the depth of the gift of God and have the blessings of God because we don't live hurried lives. So today, I want us to think about one such cause of hurry. What causes us to be in this condition of hurry? And I've come to observe one of the things that causes us to be in hurry is when our heart's desire is unfulfilled. Something so deep inside of you that you want and you pray about and it's not fulfilled. It's not given. You're disappointed. 
And that disappointment can then fester into discouragement, and that discouragement, as things you know, carry on, that discouragement can, can, can fester more in, in, into just despondency, and that despondency can eventually give full birth to a bitterness of the heart and a bitterness of the soul that finds its origin in a heart's desire, something good, something that we, we believe, we, 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 why, why can't we have this, God? Why can't we have this that, you, that, that seems reasonable? But this bitterness now begins to infect our hearts and our lives, and we find ourselves, because of it, we find ourselves in a state of hurry. We're preoccupied with our bad state always grousing about the fact that life is not fair, God does not hear us, and there's nothing I can do to change it. Because of this bitterness, we, we were drained spiritually. In fact, nothing that we do that is supposed to be good is good for long because of this bitterness. We feel that God is unavailable, that He's in the car with us, but he's not close by. And when we celebrate the truth of Christmas, Emmanuel, God with us, it doesn't resonate because we just have the sense because of this bitterness that comes from heaven, our heart's desire unfulfilled, this bitterness that's festering in us gives us the sense that God is unavailable. It's bitterness that, that begins to manifest itself in cynicism and negativity and, and just thinking about everything that's rosy and bright as fake and not real because our heart's desire has been unfulfilled. Definitely not a place of peace. Definitely not a place that the Prince of Peace wants us to be at. And so I'm encouraged because I came up across a story in the Bible, a story that's connected to the Christmas story that we don't often talk about, we don't often read at our Christmas services, but it's a story nonetheless that's connected with the telling of the birth of Jesus. And it's a story that has to do with John the Baptist. It has the story that's found in the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. It's a story about John the Baptist and his birth. But the story, I want, the people I want to look at is not necessarily John the Baptist, the person that I want to focus on is particularly Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. John the Baptist was the prophet that was promised after a season of quiet, after a season of no communication, no prophets to the people of Israel for hundreds of years, John the Baptist was the last prophet whose job was to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. John the Baptist was sent to preach to prepare Israel for the coming of Jesus. In our Bibles, we have the story that goes, the birth of John the Baptist foretold. That's what my Bible characterizes it in, in Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. I encourage you to read this on your own. I encourage you to look it up. I encourage you to, to, be, to be engaged in the details of the story. But just in summary, let me start. It begins with introducing us to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah and Elizabeth were descendants of Aaron. That means they were of the tribe of Levi, but specifically they were descendants of Aaron, who was the brother of Moses, whose descendants were given the special task 
of serving in the temple. They facilitated worship in the temple. All the elements that happen in the worship of God in the temple, well, first in the tabernacle, then the temple, were given to the people that were descended from Aaron. And Elizabeth and Zechariah were descendants of Aaron, and Zechariah served as a priest. Every year he joined his members of his clan and they served. And, and that term of service was, was two weeks. As you read the story, you find out that Zechariah lived in the hill country of Judea. So you get this idea he would travel to the temple. In two weeks he would do an act of service. Luke tells us that Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous people. In other words, they followed the word of God. They were committed, biblically living followers of God. They were good people. They were good people. But they were old and their heart's desire was unmet in that they were not blessed with children. Elizabeth, Luke says, was unable to conceive. So Zechariah went to the temple. He had his opportunity to serve, the story says. And he goes to the temple, and one of his acts of service was to light incense in the temple to worship God by the altar of incense. And he got the special honor, once-in-a-lifetime honor, drawing lots. He got the once-in-a-lifetime honor to be the one guy, the one priest who would go into the place where they burn incense and to light incense to worship God. It was a Wow, a career once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And so Zechariah went in, and when he's in there lighting incense to God, an act of worship, by himself, all of a sudden, we're told there was a man standing there, an angel of the Lord standing next to the altar. And the angel of the Lord, first of all, scared the life out of Zechariah. Bible says that he was terribly afraid. By the way, let me just say an aside, whenever an angel appears in the Bible, the first reaction isn't, oh, cute. First reaction is, uh, I'm dead, right? So angels aren't namby-pamby, wimpy-looking individuals. They're scary to see. Anyway, so the angel says, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Beautiful line here. Don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. God has registered your desire of your heart to have a child, to have a baby. When you go home, your wife is going to conceive, and she's going to have a son, and he's going to be a special boy. He's going to be one who's filled with the Spirit, even in the womb. And when he is born, he's going to be totally dedicated to God and the service of a mission, and that mission will be to prepare the hearts of the people of Israel for the coming of the Messiah. Because not only have you, Zechariah, been waiting, the nation of Israel has been waiting for the promise of God to fulfill the sending of the Messiah who will set them free and establish his kingdom. Gabriel, we find out, the angel makes this announcement. And then Zechariah speaks. And what do we discover? Zechariah goes, how's that going to work? How's that going to work? Me and the missus are ogeezers. That's my Didi loose translation. If I wrote a Bible, that's what it would be. We're too old. How's that, how, that going to work? Really? 
Wow. Let me just take a moment to, to pause here. Let's just take a moment to reflect on Zechariah's response. How is it this man who is righteous, who has been faithful to God all his life, how is it that he reacts in such a way to the announcement that the angel gave to him that your wife will conceive and have a child even though she's too old? How did he get there? I've got to believe that this was a point an issue in Zechariah regarding bitterness. I have to figure out maybe the disappointment of prayers unanswered over the years had began to fester in his life. And while he couldn't really be overtly mad at God and do something that was like, forget God, I'm going to do my own thing. No, because he was a good guy. He was committed to that. While he was faithful to God, there was an aspect of his life where this disappointment had turned into discouragement that had kind of grown into a disillusionment and disbelief that turned into bitterness because out of his mouth came words of cynicism and sarcasm and a lack of faith. Out of his mouth came what was in his heart. The bitterness that comes from heart's desire unmet. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you can connect with that. Maybe it has to do with your marriage. The heart's desire for your marriage has been unmet. He didn't turn out to be the guy that I thought he was. Maybe she isn't the woman I thought I married. Maybe it has to do with your children. You thought you did everything that was needed to be done. Your motivations were good. You may have messed up here and there, but you did everything you thought you needed to do to rear your children right, and yet they continue to choose what is wrong. And your prayers that God would intercede on your behalf and, and, and capture your child have gone unmet. And that disappointment of your heart's desire has turned into a disillusionment that's manifested itself in a bitterness. Maybe it has to do with your health. Yeah, you weren't perfect. You did eat, like to eat donuts every now and then, but you, by and large, took care of your health. You, by and large, looked after yourself, but now, now you have cancer. How does that work? How does that operate? Maybe it has to do with your career. You're not working where you like to work. I think it was Drew Carey who once joked. He said, don't like your job? Well, there's a support group for that. It's called Everyone. And they meet at the bar. <laughs> Can you relate to Zechariah? Is there a part of you, maybe not all, but a part of you that's disappointed, that's disillusioned, discouraged, and now maybe bitterness, and it's coming out in your mouth. It's coming out in a sarcasm. 
It's coming out in a cynicism. It's coming out in a characterization of life that's always yes, but. You're always hedging your bets. Anything that appears optimistic, you're suspicious of. Anything that appears hopeful, you undermine. You're the Debbie Downer of the party. You're the Danny Depressed of the family. Zachariah spoke out, and the angel dealt with him, didn't he? I mean, the story is, is that the angel says, whoa, 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 whoa. Didn't say it that way, but he said, listen, dude, I am Gabriel, and I stand before the throne of God. In other words, I am the voice of God speaking to you. And he said, because you don't believe, your mouth will be shut. Your mouth will be shut. You will not speak until you're able to hold that baby boy in your arms. You will not be able to speak because you did not believe. And Zechariah came out of that place on his own. People were getting impatient. Where is he? Where is he? What's going on? He came out. He couldn't speak. Had to write down and make signs and try to communicate them like, ooh, something happened. He had a vision. Of course, being a man, he went home. Must have written a note. Hey, an angel of the Lord said, uh, you're going to have a baby. So what do you think, lady? Um, and uh, <laughs> I just love the humanity of, of the Bible, right? After his two weeks of service, he went home, and he was home. I find it interesting how the lesson learned here is that Zechariah's mouth was shut. And in my struggle with bitterness, I wonder if there's something to be taken there that Zechariah was kept quiet as the lesson to fully appreciate what was going on. The lesson for him to realize that in the face of bitterness, if he trusts in God's faithfulness, he can bring it into a blessing. And I wonder if those of us who struggle with this issue, those of us who are living a hurried life because of the bitterness of unmet heart's desires, if there is a lesson here for us to say, maybe what we need to do is keep our mouth closed in those moments and take a deep breath and to see this issue of unmet heart's desires an opportunity to believe but more importantly, to live by faith. As an opportunity to affirm our trust in God's faithfulness. Francis Schaeffer, long-time Christian philosopher, wrote a paper in which he said, and he was describing the condition of the American church, he said, I've come to see that there are two chairs. There's the chair of belief and the chair of faith the chair of belief and the chair of faith. The chair of belief is the, is the place in which we come to acknowledge Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the God. I believe. I believe that he's the means in which we can have salvation. He died and rose again on the third day. And in saying that, I have to believe because you're here, most of us are in, have sat in that chair of belief. We've come to that place like Tabor where we've said, I believe and I make a commitment with my life to that belief. 
we sit in the, in the chair of belief, but we also need to move and go from there to the chair of faith. And the chair of faith is a matter of living by the resources and strength of God. It's living, trust, and obey in our day-to-day, -day, right? But it's hard for us to live in the chair of faith, particularly as Americans where we have everything. If we're sick, what do we do? We go to the doctor. Not saying we shouldn't go to the doctor, but that's what we do because we have the best doctors. If we're hungry, we open the refrigerator. If we're stressed and, and we're overwhelmed, we, we go to the counselor. If we have a problem, we deal with the problem with our ingenuity and our resources and, and, our, and our technology. We have a lot in America, which means what? As believers, it's hard for us many times when we're facing difficulty, when we're facing those moments when our heart's desire are unmet. It's hard for us to sit in the chair of faith, to trust and obey to take that moment to see God work in our life because we trust that God's faithfulness can turn bitterness into blessing. But what we see from the story of Zechariah is that sitting in the chair of faith, when we choose to keep our mouth closed with criticism and comment and, oh, yeah, what, blah, blah, taking control, instead submitting ourselves to the truth that God is faithful and God will, in the end, even though the end may be my end, will make all things right and bless us and trust and obey in Him. If we choose to do that, God turns bitterness into blessing. So what does the text tell us? The text says that Zechariah went home, his wife conceived, and in her conception put herself in seclusion, being an old lady, she didn't want to make a big scene, and it says there in verse 25, this is what Elizabeth said, the Lord has done this for me, the acknowledgement of God's faithfulness, the depth of her bitterness became the volume of her appreciation to God. She said, the Lord has done this for me. In these days, he has shown his favor. And the word shown his favor is, in, is translated in NIV um, really strangely, but really it means the Lord has seen me. He's seen me. Not only has he heard me, I heard you, Zechariah. Elizabeth said, he's seen me. In these days, in these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace, taken away my bitterness, taken away the hurt from an unfulfilled heart's desire among the people. God's faithfulness transformed the bitterness into blessing. So a number of years ago, I was in a bitter place. It had to do with ministry circumstances surrounding ministry, and in particular, it had to do with a severe disappointment in spiritual mentors, father figures in my life who had let me down and left me with a mess. I was in a bad place. I was experiencing everything described and being in a condition of hurry because of the bitterness of my heart. So I decided that I needed to go and talk to someone because 
I'll be honest with you, I was ready to walk. I was ready to move to Texas or do something different. I don't know why Texas, but it is it was. So I went to see an old college professor friend of mine, and I began to describe that situation. And he said, funny thing is, I was just in Scripture remembering the story of the people of Israel recorded for us in Exodus as we're told they came through the Red Sea. Remember the parting of the Red Sea and the deliverance from the people, the Israel, uh, from the Egyptians and all that. And Moses leads them, it says, in the, in the text, it leads them for three days in the desert. And they're three days in the desert without water. They're three days in the desert without water. So guess what? They're really thirsty. And they're beginning to get a little nervous. Can you imagine that? Moms and children like, oh, you know, Joseph, where are we going to get water? Hey, where are we going to get water? So they come to a well. They get excited because, oh, water at last. But then their excitement is just turned into disappointment because that well is at a place called Mara. Mara means bitter. It's called bitter because the well, the water in the well is bitter and undrinkable. So here they are, three days without water. Their heart's desire is to be quenched of their thirst, but the well that they're led to is bitter. They can't even drink it, and so they bought throw a fit. The people of Israel bought throw a fit. They're ready to turn on Moses and, you know, do whatever they need to do. So Moses cries out to God. God says, hey, Moses, there is a piece of wood there. Grab that wood, throw it into the water, and it turned into sweet water. And the people drank. And then the last verse of that chapter on this little description of what occurred last verse of the chapter it says and then they came to Elam they came to Elam and at Elam there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees in other words it was an oasis and my mentor said to me Didi that God was always leading them to Elam they just had to go through Mara and they sinned by rushing God's hand in the lesson of trusting God's faithfulness to turn bitterness into blessing. Because had they pressed on just a little bit more, God would have brought them to the sweet waters of Elam. And maybe, just maybe, as you're in this season of bitterness in your ministry, maybe it's important to recognize that God called you on this journey. And you need to just trust in his faithfulness because maybe he's leading you through Mara to Elam. And I'm glad I did. Because what he said turned out to be true. We're at Elam now. Trust God's faithfulness to turn bitterness into blessing. Thank you for listening. You can interact with us online at our website www.mtcarmelchurch.org also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.